Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. Today we're going to talk about temptation. When you think of temptation, what image has come to mind? Uh, maybe, uh, maybe for some of you who remember the biblical story, this comes to mind of an apple and a snake. Uh, uh, because my girls love uh, dog pictures, uh, maybe this is a great picture for you when it comes to temptation. Isn't that cute? So cuddly, and those dogs are slobbery too. Or maybe this one, the picture of a button. Do you really want to spend the rest of your life wondering? That actually is the story of a friend of ours called Patty who loved pushing buttons so much. Uh, She worked in a bank in the back offices, and during her break, she'd come out and talk to the friends who were tellers and worked out at the desks out front. And one day she was out there on on a friend's desk. There was this little remote with the new buttons on. So she picked it up, and she started pointing around and couldn't figure out what it worked for. And about five minutes later, about ten police cars come roaring into into the parking lot and come running into the building with their guns out. And she was informed after they finally got less freaked out that she had accidentally pushed the silent alarm button. But she realized what she had done and was scared to actually come clean with her button fascination. She uh, forgot that there were lots of surveillance cameras, though, so she ended up in the manager's office anyway, (laughs) watching the film of her call all the police. Temptation. As we continue our summer series, Everyday Wisdom, we're going to talk about Proverbs 7 today, where where, uh, Proverbs actually, the whole chapter, Solomon is giving an example using sex as an example. Let me apologize for last week, not giving you a little bit more warning earlier on in the message. My daughter actually began last week counting the number of times I used the word sex, and, and I have officially used up my quota for the next two years. So other than the text, which is really, we'll say very little about that particular topic, Solomon is actually using it as an illustration for a much bigger issue to illustrate for us how temptation works, how we recognize the ba- and battle and overcome temptation so that we don't sin, so that we don't bring destruction to our lives. But just remember, temptation itself is not a sin. What you do in response to temptation determines whether you sin or not. We all face temptation every day, sometimes every minute, sometimes every second. What you do in response to temptation, where your mind goes and stays and where your actions go in regard to temptation is what determines whether it becomes sin. So how do we move away from temptation and turn to God and resist it? As we begin this message, I'd just like to start today with some prayer. Father, I pray that you'd come because we all struggle with this. Some of the most painful, disappointing, shameful moments of our lives are, are moments we remember when we, have, uh, when we have made bad choices in regard to temptation where we've succumbed. And Lord, we so want to be free of that. And we know that's what you want for us to do as well, to be free, to overcome temptation, to be strong, to be experiencing all the goodness you have for us in life. 
So, Lord, I pray that that today would be the result. Even though we talk about something that can tap into some of those really serious and difficult thoughts for us, Lord, I pray that you would come to each and every one of us in our thoughts and help us find the freedom, the hope, the next step to greater freedom in our life in some way. Speak to each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're going to start by reading Proverbs 7, throwing in bits of commentary along the way, and then we're going to, at the end, come back and kind of loop back and distill some bit lessons about overcoming temptation. So the text also actually gives us some really interesting ways of how we acquire wisdom, but we don't have time for that today. So if you want to look at that, I want to encourage you to actually go home and read this text with that question in mind. How does this text teach us how we acquire wisdom? It's really brilliant what Proverbs does in this passage. So Proverbs 7 starts this, this, it says, My son, keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Okay, the apple of the eye, pupil of the eye, God's, keep God's laws in view and everything. Everything you see and think and do, let it filter through God's word is what he's saying. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Make the scriptures something memorized in your heart. Make God's word so a part of you that every thought and deed is laced with that. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. And, and here's where Solomon begins to tell us the story of his observation. He says, For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, and I have perceived among the youths and young men, a young man lacking sense. And what's he doing? He's passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, in the, in the time of night and darkness. So Solomon sees this guy walking down the road with his earbuds in, probably listening to Born to be Wild. But in actuality, this is the soundtrack Solomon is hearing. This guy is about to be seduced by temptation. I love that soundtrack. I, uh, the movie scares the bejeebers out of me, but... And he knows what he's doing. He's going to temptation. He knows what he's doing. He walked to her corner. Isn't it true that sometimes, like him, we seem to want to be tempted? It's kind of like this push and pull that temptation does in each of us. We don't like to succumb, but we kind of like the excitement or the feeling that draws us in. Text goes on and says, And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, at every corner she lies in wait. She's everywhere, not just one place. So, so what this is telling us is Solomon is actually writing a compilation of many observations he's made into a story or a metaphor for us about temptation. And he's saying temptation is everywhere. Even if you're not tempted by sexual sin, Satan brings ideas and thoughts and desires and tempts us to behaviors in other areas of our lives. And I know it's in our world, this idea of Satan, real demons, is not very popular in our culture. But if the Bible is true, then being tempted by evil angelic beings is a very real fact, believe it or not. Even from a simple logic, think about it. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but think about it. Even from a simple logic thing. If you believe in a good spiritual being, namely as in God, then why is it so hard to believe in evil spiritual beings as well? As the text continues, we see a shift. 
from passively stumbling along into the thrill of living on the edge to temptation becoming aggressive and reeling him in. So she seizes him, it says, kisses him, and with a bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I had to pay my vows. What's this churchy stuff in the middle of this? She kisses him and then says, I just came from worshiping him in the temple. Kiss him, tempt him, and then bring up God? That seems kind of stupid, doesn't it? Wouldn't it be better to be silent, to not spark guilt? I mean, what's she doing? Is she trying to push him away? No, actually, temptation is so very sinister. She kisses him, and at that moment, his conscience, I'm sure, is probably screaming, Danger! And instead of letting it scream danger in silence and him feel guilty, she just acknowledges what he's feeling and says basically, hey, I just worshiped. God forgave me. Don't be worried about God. God forgives, right? We know that. I've already offered my sacrifices. We're good. God's good. It's okay. God is loving and kind. No worries. No worries. Some Protestants and Catholics use a similar kind of rationalization. Growing up, a couple of my Catholic friends used to go to Saturday evening Mass for communion. And their thinking was this. I'm going to go out and party on Saturday night, and I'm going to sin. So I need to go to church first so that I am forgiven and God isn't mad. So I can at least make it to the party safely without judgment being on me or evil hurting me. And for the ones who were really fearful, they would go to confession as quickly as possible after partying that weekend so that they could have a clean slate for the rest of the week and be, be protected from judgment and evil during the week until the next weekend when they would repeat the process all over again. As Protestants, we can sometimes do the same thing, except we skip the confessional and we go right to the source. We say, it's okay if I mess up, I just ask God to forgive and I confess my sins and everything's okay. It's kind of like swiping your credit card, right? This confession in this way may give you an emotional catharsis, but if you live like this, you're you're not experiencing real repentance or real forgiveness. We'll bring more clarity to that in a moment. The text goes on and says this. So now I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly. And I've found you. What's she doing? She's flattering him. She's letting him know how cool he is, how sought after, how wanted he is. See, notice temptation in this moment isn't so much physical, as, as powerful as that drawing is. Temptation in this moment is primarily about words used to promise the fulfillment of a desire. As with most temptations, there's a physical bodily need or an appetite for it, but there's also this deep soul dimension to temptation. We want to feel strong. We want to feel praised. We want to have a sense of being sought after, of being valued, of being wanted. The cravings of our soul fuel our behavior, and temptation taps into that so often. Temptation's words lead you sometimes to think, my spouse should be treating me better. So since they're not, it's okay to flirt with this person and get some positive affirmation. It makes me feel good. Or your self-talk might be saying, I deserve more affirmation, promotion, and money than I'm getting at my work. And so it's not a big deal if I use a little bit of work time for work resources for personal stuff. We rationalize sin so easily. The conversation goes on. It says, I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. Uh, This is like exotic stuff, 
luxuries from luxuries from Egypt. You might be hearing in your head as well from temptation at times, you have such a str- I have such a stressful job. This this drink, this looking at this internet thing, this purchase, oh come on, I I deserve a little guilty pleasure, a reward. That's all it is. It's not so bad. I deserve to spoil myself. Temptation so often drives our financial overspending or inappropriate spending we do with that. See, I have, she goes on and says, I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Those are the same kind of spices she just got done worshiping God with at the temple. Come on, let us take a fill of love till the morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. So just, just picture this, but not too graphically. She's got her essential oils. She's got John Legend, all of me playing in the background. She's thought this through in every little detail to make this a really sweet environment. So then she goes on and says, for my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. Well, I certainly hope he has if I'm the guy. There's the truth. Here's the truth she's trying to communicate in this, though, that's really important. We look for times when we have enough time alone to not be caught. You may even take your phone out and take the Find Your Friends app out and you look at it and say, oh, my spouse, my roommate, my kids, oh, they're still at the mall. That means I have at least 30 minutes and I know what I'm going to do is only going to take 20 minutes, so I'm good. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get caught, right? says he took a bag of money with him. Some translations say he took a purse with him, so, you know, man purses were back then too as well. Uh, and he says a full moon will come, at full moon he will come home. So in other words, she's saying, we can do this. No one will ever know about it. No consequences. Come stay the weekend. Nothing but pleasure. Nothing bad will happen. It's all good. Nobody's going to know about it. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. Again, what, what persuaded him in this temptation? Not her sex appeal, but the lies that surround the temptation the words. And then it says, all at once, he follows her. That phrase should scare the crud out of every single one of us. Suddenly, all at once, the last tiny little straw on the camel's back, and it breaks and everything falls apart in temptation. J.D. Greer, pastor and author, says it this way, a lifetime of resistance just evaporates in a moment. See, temptation is far more powerful and we are far more weak than we realize. That's why my illustration of my pastor friend who who fell last week, that's the reason he could fall so hard, so fast, so far. All of a sudden, all at once, temptation draws us in and then we fall and it just happens like a flood. See, if this guy had just not gone there. He wouldn't be in this place, but this guy is already trapped. And text goes on and says, like an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. Now, liver in ancient times is the exact same thing as us saying today, an arrow pierced its heart. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. He does not know what kind of damage and death it will bring to the dreams of his life. And now, O sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. 
Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray to her path, to temptation's path. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. You see, we all think we're so strong, we are mightier. It won't get me. I can handle this. But it does get us, even the mightiest among us. So let's distill some wisdom lessons for understanding and overcoming temptation. And as we remember, let's start again with back to our our definition of wisdom. Wisdom is what? It is the courage to face reality and learn to respond with growing competence. So first, the first reality is this. Temptation is everywhere. It's on every corner, especially at night in the dark when you're tired and, and in the hidden places. For some of you, that temptation is sex and porn. For others of you, it is materialism, and that drives your desire for something more, something nicer, to look good, fashionable, cool. For others of you, it is pride. You have lots of self-talk constantly going on about how good you are or or comparing yourself to others or how you did or or didn't get recognition that you deserved. And and you find yourself with people who who you were more successful with, and, and you feel good. You like the feeling of being the expert in the room, the most successful in the room. And then flip side that around, maybe you go from that meeting to another meeting where you're the least successful person in the room, and you know what you find yourself saying? Well, yeah, but I treat my customers better. I mean, pride is such an interesting thing in our life. 1 John teaches us the temptations of Satan come in three varieties. It says the lust of the flesh, the desire for sex, food, comfort, strength, sleep, things like that, the lust of the eyes, materialism, greed, and and avarice, which is the insatiability of always needing more, never being enough. Just, I got this, but now, now this is nicer, and I need that, and the pride of life. It's really easy for us, I think, in our world to discern the first two of those, maybe the first one and maybe maybe possibly the second one as well, though though we let a lot of materialism slip under the radar of, of just good success and prosperity, never realizing how much our desire for things and wanting things is driving us and our decisions and tempting us and taking valuable energy away from other things. But but pride, that third one, it can be so hidden and so unrecognized. Second tidbit of wisdom. We need to discern the lies and know the truth. Again, what was it that got this guy? It it was the words. It was the lies. The guy is not paying attention to the lies he is believing. Instead, he's just being led by desire. Instead of wise discipline that directs desire into the right place at the right time in the right way. Desire is in the driver's seat for him, and that always leads to trouble. And the lie that this guy is believing and is through his temptation has three basic parts, and they're actually the same three basic parts that you find in the story of the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis, and they are the same lies that every single one of us will face at some level in almost every temptation we face. The first one is that you know what's best for your life. This tree looks good. This is pleasurable. How could something so pleasurable and fun and harmless be so harmful? The second lie we tend to believe is God's ways cannot be trusted. We start to think, oh, they're restrictive. They're, they're old-fashioned. They're regressive. Maybe, maybe, to keep, maybe he's trying to keep something uh, good from you. Uh, God doesn't want what's best for you. So, so I can be the judge better than him of what's good, and I can take matters into my own hands. And the third one is this. You don't need to fear judgment. 
you will surely not die. You will surely be forgiven. It's not that big of a deal. God's good. God forgives. This is the basic story arc of almost every lie and every temptation we face. I mean, the Vegas commercials don't tell you about the people who lose it all and end up on the streets. Years ago, I was working with a church in Vegas, and, and they kept telling us story after story after story of how they would get people every single week, multiple people coming in and saying, could I just have some money for some food, and could you help me get a bus ticket? I lost it all, and I can't even get home. It's a little bit like the drug commercials that we see today, except you never really hear the disclaimers at the end. You know, those words that are sped up to 10 times the normal speed where they say things like, while this product may cure acne, it may also cause sterility and violent vomiting and diarrhea and welts that might cause permanent disfiguration. And in rare cases, you might randomly blurt out something really embarrassing and burst into flames. That's usually, you know, the, the, the focus of how those things go. But then they always show a person looking like a goddess sitting on the beach with the most perfect photoshopped skin. Wouldn't it be helpful if we had more of those disclaimers labeled on everyday things that tempt us in life? Wouldn't it be helpful if, we, if there was a label that said, you know, guy, talking to this girl might lead to heartache and loss of friendship and loneliness and STIs, STDs, whichever term you use, turn your eyes away and move away. Or... Taking this job promotion might result in the alienation of your family and the loss of their respect because you're going to be such a workaholic and angry all the time that, that you'll have problems if you take this promotion. See, the problem is that too often our feelings, our thoughts, and the lies are really too difficult and painful for us to face. We'd rather escape into a movie, a book, or an activity rather than take the time to be self-reflective, to discern what's going on inside of us, what lies we're believing and being driven by in that temptation. And Satan, the supernaturally endowed liar, is taking a destructive thing and making it seem beneficial, even appealing to us. See, there's only one thing that can counter those lies adequately. You find it in Solomon's opening line. He says, My son, keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of the eye. Make sure you filter everything through my design for life. Bind them on your fingers. Make sure that every way you point yourself in life, every action you do is first and foremost directed by my word. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Make it so a part of you that it is just second nature that you understand God's truth and God's word and God's design for how he designed us to live life to the fullest. See, this is, this is one of the reasons why I'm really proud of our children and youth ministry. Chris has implemented this new apologetics class I'm really excited about for training fourth and fifth graders and trying to help them evaluate cultural views through the lens of Scripture. And it's already doing well, and, and we're continuing to make improvements. I'm so excited about where that's going to go even in the future as well. Jeremy is amazingly intentional and so good at planning curriculum and experiences for the youth where they not only learn the Bible, but they learn to how to apply it to their daily thinking and life and relationships. See, it's not just about memorization. It's about knowing how it fits in life. As Solomon instructs, see everything through the lens of God's word, God's truth, God's design. It's just like our bodies. Our bodies are designed to be treated in a certain way. I absolutely love ice cream, but if I eat ice cream for three meals a day and a late night snack, I'm going to become more rotund than I am. 
And doctors who study the design of our body say we need to take those desires and get them in line with how we are designed. Because desires and temptation attached to desire always leads to destruction. The Bible teaches you God's design and can help you change. Psalm 19 says it this way, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Perfect meaning all-sided, many-faceted, all-encompassing, comprehensive. It touches every area of our life. It revives our soul. It starts to bring change to us. Taking the time to read the Bible daily to help us see God's design for us is so important. Even when we don't fully understand it, we can trust His design and that His truth is good for us. Because if we don't discern the lies and we don't learn God's truths, we'll end up being like an ox led to the slaughter where we're just walking along in life with whatever is feeding us, whatever is driving us, and whatever is guiding us, whatever we've been worshiping for a time, thinking this is just fine until the knife hits our throats and it's too late. The third lesson of wisdom is this. Sin leads to death. Temptation tells us, ah, oh, it's okay. You do more good than bad. Don't worry about it. God can be paid off. He'll forgive you. Do your religious actions, your prayers. Ask God forgiveness and all will be fine. Swipe your Christian credit card. Now, now we need to walk a really fine line here because certainly God's forgiveness is amazing and generous beyond anything we can imagine. But forgiveness is granted for repentance, not just a hollow, empty, sorry, I need to deal with this guilt, but I'm really going to do the same thing next weekend because it's no big deal. See, for some of you, I just triggered warning bells, though. Some of you are thinking, well, I have this continual struggle with sin in an area of my life. Are you saying that I'm not saved? Are, uh, are, you, are you saying I'm not forgiven because I keep struggling, I keep falling with this? No, I'm not saying that. Every single one of us, I have areas, every single one of us has areas that we struggle with on a regular basis. There is a difference between, though, trying to use God to get forgiveness and get relief from our feelings of guilt and really truly repenting and turning away from your sin and turning toward God. Furthermore, sin has this effect of of, of this dangerous effect of deadening and weakening your spirit. The, your heart is more callous towards God's spirit, making it more difficult to respond to him. Randy Alcorn has a book called The Purity Principle. Uh, uh, 25 years ago, he tells a story how he and a friend listed about 25 consequences of what would happen in their life if they were unfaithful to their wife or sexually immoral in some way. Uh, I personalized some of that list for myself, and I'd encourage you to consider doing the same thing. Here's some of my lists that I personalized from his. I don't want to be the one responsible for giving God a bad name because of my bad decisions, because someday I'm going to stand face-to-face with God and give an account for why I chose to sin rather than choose Him. I don't want to cause untold hurt to my wife, destroying the best relationship and gift God's ever given me, destroying her hope in life as well and creating misery for her. I don't want to leave my kids with a wound that makes them have to climb a steeper hill to get to a good marriage and a family. I don't don't want my kids and grandkids, patience, we're not rushing grandkids here, but we are going to hopefully have them someday. Uh, I don't want to make it, I don't want my kids and grandkids to experience at the added difficulty of a broken family in terms of the relationships and the trust and the conflict and even the negative financial impact. 
As a Christian leader, I don't want to cause harm to the faith of possibly thousands of people by falling because my actions would maybe make some people bitter towards the church and maybe even cause some people to fall away from the church or never come to faith in the first place. I don't want to be that person who helps send somebody to hell because my sin caused them to not believe. I don't want to be a user of other people for my own pleasure leaving them blinded to the level of love that God has for them and the kind of love He longs for them in their relationships. You see, we could do something that would cause all those consequences and still be forgiven, and yet the consequences are still there. And some of you know that very, very personally, and it's really painful for you in your background, and even today because you know that, and yet... You know how loved you are, and if you don't, I hope you know how loved you are by God and how forgiven you are and how perfect His forgiveness is there for you. But you know you also live with the consequences still of the past even to this day. And yes, God is so good. He brings such amazing redemption. He does. But why add all those difficult circumstances and dynamics to life into the equation Because when, when we could have avoided it? Maybe some of you are on the brink of that kind of uh, devastating sexual sin or some other kind of sin in your life. And maybe you need to confess what is happening to God and to a friend and ask for help. And I know how painful and threatening that can be to open up about something like that. I've been able to walk through that with a number of people. But I can tell you this. As painful, as scary as opening up about that would be, it's not as painful as the consequences of not doing something about it and falling into that sin and blowing everything up. See, the lesson of wisdom is to walk humbly and openly with God and fellow believers, especially in regard to the areas where we know we are weakest, knowing that some of those areas are going to be lifelong battles. So we need to constantly be on our guard because, as Solomon says, temptation is at every corner. Knowing that we will likely fall repeatedly in some of these areas. But if we learn to truly repent and step away and try as much as we can to press into God and His wisdom, not being alone in the battle, avoiding going places in the dark, trying to stay away from temptation whenever possible, then over time your falls will become stumbles will become mild slips and gradually happen less and less often. And the fruit of wisdom will begin to change your life. And when it says the wise understand sin leads to death, that also means, again, that, that sin deadens us. It hardens our hearts and makes our ability to discern the lie and the cause of pain in our lives harder and harder. So the longer we delay and the less responsive we are to repenting, it becomes harder and harder for us, blinding us. Fourth lesson of wisdom is this. Don't do life alone and don't hide things. See, the guy Solomon observed was all alone trying to hide. If a wise friend like Solomon had been with him, he would have had stood a chance of resisting the temptation and the destruction that followed. If he hadn't been doing this at night in hiddenness, he might have stood a chance. If you were tempted to fudge documentation on expense reports at your work because you're frustrated with how you're treated and you want to take advantage, then don't do it alone. If you've got a personal assistant, show them. Keep good documentation. 
If you're struggling with watching things that are not good for you, whether it's just binge-watching way too much and escaping way too much and it's not healthy for you or your family or relationships or even if you're getting stuck in porn, plan to have your screen time with other people. Don't do it alone. Don't do it in when you are hidden. Randy Alcorn tells the story of a young man coming to him who was mad at God. He asked him why he was mad, and the young man said, Well, last week I committed adultery. So from that statement, it would be easy to understand why God would be disappointed in, in his sin, but why was he mad at God? And so Randy asked him that. He said the young man went on to say, Because for several months this woman and I work with, we, we had this strong mutual attraction. And then he went on to say how he had been praying fervently for God to help him keep him from adultery. <clears throat> Alcorn asked him, well, did you tell your wife? Did you tell someone else? Did you keep your distance from this woman? And he said, well, no. We ate lunch together almost every day at work. So Alcorn was sitting at his desk and he began pushing a desk to, book across the desk toward him. And while he was pushing it, Alcorn started praying out loud, God, help this book not fall off the table. But he, he pushed it until there was a big thud and it fell off the table. God, for some reason, didn't suspend the law of gravity in that instance. And then he looked up to the young man and said, I'm mad at God because he didn't keep the book from falling off the table and hitting the floor. See, we do that so often. We make unwise choices in our response to temptation and we reap destruction and we blame God for the destruction. Wisdom's invitation is to greater wisdom, healthiness, joy, prosperity, and more freedom and success in life. And temptation undermines that. See, part of this being alone and hidden thing, it actually comes down to pride in our lives. Proverbs 16 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, why is that? It's because pride always causes us to overestimate our strength and underestimate our vulnerability. I mean, the famous last words are all too often, I can handle this. I can fudge on this thing and it's not going to become something bigger. I'm not going to do something more seriously wrong. This is just a small little thing. I, I can handle this show. I can handle these images and it's not going to impact my thoughts and my relationships negatively. I can handle this depression on my own and I don't need help. But we all need help. Every single one of us. We need each other and most importantly, we need a Savior. Which is what Solomon is saying when he personifies wisdom as and God, in writing, say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. Now, many scholars believe this word sister because it's a Hebrew word used very similar to that of wife is actually an intimate reference to one's wife, kind of a pet name, which actually makes kind of sense with the second line of that text as well. So from this, we get our final tip of wisdom, which is you only defeat temptation by being in love with someone greater. See, that's the way you keep yourself from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress, with her smooth words, from any other temptation. That's the core of defeating temptation. We can try to come up with different strategies that keep us from temptation. We can do things to fix the problem. I mean, but, but what gives the power to overcome temptation, to, to not sin? Reading the Bible and consuming the Bible? having a close relationships in a, in a sense of community where we don't hide and we don't support each other. Those things are all good. We've just said those are part of wisdom. But they're not enough. The Bible says those other things are basically like having a car and engine, but you need the fuel for it to work. 
And we see Titus, the first pastor on the island of Crete, give us the, uh, Paul's letter to him, give us the answer. It says, for the grace of God, he's referring very personally to Jesus in the context here, for Jesus appearing, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodly and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. It is God's loving grace that has the power to teach us to say no to the sinful desires of the world, to live the life God designed for us. See, these other things may point us to the grace of God, but they're not the key. Temptation is always challenging who you worship. Sin is always a worship issue. This woman offers heavenly delights and tries to meet his soul needs, but the only way our soul needs ever get met is through our Creator and through His love of our Heavenly Father. See, being engrossed in His love is, 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 is enough to overcome temptation. When we talk about being in love, though, let's, let's, just, let's just make it clear. We're not talking about some sort of big romantic uh, type of up-and-down roller coaster. We're talking about learning to be committed to someone for a lifetime, committed to love God and grow in His love and living for gratefulness towards Him for who He is to us. See, if we don't get this relational piece of our faith with God right, we'll never overcome temptation like we want to. We will, we'll just replace whatever temptation we give up with another addiction. So you quit drinking and, and, and you, you begin to overeat. It's really kind of hilarious almost. A study showed that teetotaling Christians a few years ago actually are more obese than those who drink. Why? Because they reject the temptation to abuse alcohol and they replace it with abusive food. It's still a worship issue. They, they are still just not, they're not going to God for their comfort in that instance, but to food still for their comfort. You might give up smoking and replace it with exercise. Certainly, certainly exercise is a lot healthier, but you're still not getting it from God. You're getting your need met by feeling stronger, feeling more beautiful. How's that going to look in a few years for you? It's very fickle, isn't it? Discipline and rules can help contain you, can put boundaries and be beneficial, but they don't transform you. Growing in knowing how deeply you are loved in a very personal relationship with God, that He, the God of the universe, loved you so much that He gave Himself for you. You see, in this text, Jesus is the sister. It's the intimate friend in this proverb. He is the wisdom of God for us. He is the Savior. We need the only one strong enough. The wisdom of the Bible isn't ultimately about rules. It isn't ultimately about principles or even philosophy. It is relationship. Everything points to relationship. To be saved and forgiven and to be on the path of wisdom means you let Jesus Take control of your life, all areas of your life. What you think, what you believe, what you do, what you believe morality to be, how and why you work, how you do marriage and parenting and friendship, how you do leisure, how you spend, save, and give money. You do it all because if you love him and he loves you and you do it all because of gratefulness, because you know that love. See, the moment you give Jesus the leadership of your life is the moment you are forgiven and you are washed clean and given a clean slate. 
even if the consequences of the past decisions remain and you still need to navigate those consequences, you at least get to navigate them now with a clean slate, no guilt, and the process of healing and freedom and growth can really begin. You stop trading one addiction for another, one worship disorder for another, and you begin to discover a path toward true freedom in life. If you've never received Jesus as the leader of your life in that way, you've never had that kind of a relationship with God, you can begin that journey right here, right now, today. It is a gift of God to you. you. All you have to do is receive it and then follow Jesus. It isn't about you getting your life cleaned up enough so that you're ready to receive Jesus and you're worthy of following him. That has nothing to do with it because the love of Jesus meets you right where you're at. And he wants you to receive him right where you are at. And wherever you are at, in all the temptation or sin you're you're in, he wants to take you right there, love you right there, and just give you the next step. Today, I'm going to ask you for a bold move. If that's you, and you've never followed Jesus in that way, then I'm going to ask you in just a minute when we stand to pray to raise your hand and just make a physical action again. We've not done this. I've had baggage with the way the church did this in the past. But I've come to the conclusion, you know what, honestly, we're not here to count hands. It's not a notch on our belt. But if you walk out of here today without doing something tangible to acknowledge that decision, something physical to acknowledge that decision, whether it's raising your hand or whether it's you coming to me or one of the prayer people afterwards and saying, I made that decision today, it's going to be a weak decision for you today. It's going to be kind of the same thing that my friends used to do going to confession and mass or or going to church on the weekend to make sure they felt better to dispense of their guilt so they could walk on that next week and it really didn't change anything in their lives. God wants you to know his love. He wants to come to you right where you are right now, even before you change, and love you and forgive you right there. But you need to respond and you need to receive him as the leader of your life. If you're a follower of Jesus, this message may have brought to light some areas where you've held God at a distance, where you have treated him as a loving, forgiving father, but with no tangible action or intent on your part to change. You've kind of been that person who treats him kind of the forgiveness kind of almost flippantly. And God is inviting you to repent today, to come out of hiding, to not face it alone, to surrender that particular area of your life which you've kept hidden and you just keep relying on this sloppy kind of forgiveness and, uh, and he wants you to take steps away from that corner of temptation in the light of day with friends to support you. So would, would you all just stand with me as we could prepare to pray and close in some more worship. And as you stand, would you, uh, would you just close your eyes? If either of those invitations apply to you and you need to respond to that, would you just raise your hand before we pray? You might even raise your hand and I might not even be able to see you. Lord, we pray that you would come and you'd meet each and every one of us. Because, Lord, this is a topic that touches each and every one of us. It'll touch us today. It's touched us this morning. It's going to touch us this afternoon. Because temptation is everywhere. And, Lord, we know it. 
Lord, I pray that you'd use the wisdom that you shared through your word today to us to bring greater and greater freedom to us, greater and greater joy to us, and greater honesty with you and with each other so that, Lord, we can walk free into the amazing plan you have for our life, into the design for goodness and impact and meaning and joy and peace and comfort and freedom from guilt that you have for us. Father, I pray that even as we continue to, continue to worship now, that you would come and your spirit would touch us. And I pray if there's anybody here who is feeling a sense of guilt from sin and temptation, that you would come right now and you would wash it away and invite them to your love and the freedom and clean slate that you have for each and every one of us. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.